Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 92 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I am a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me, of course, is... This is Michelle Tarvox. I'm an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. And our third host today is the Pimping Bell. Say hello, Pimping Bell. The Pimping Bell will ring when we talk about especially question-worthy or noteworthy content. And like our last episode, we thank the Hawaii Dermatology Seminar for supporting this episode. We are excited about this collaboration, and we are planning to be there and have a booth. So the 45th Annual Hawaii Dermatology Seminar is the one that's coming up this upcoming February, from February 19th through the 24th. You'll want to come to join your colleagues in Honolulu to discover advancements in psoriasis, hair, atopic dermatitis, facial rejuvenation, cutaneous malignancies, and more. So if you're interested, register now with the exclusive discount code DERMASPHERE, D-E-R-M-A-S-P-H-E-R-E, to receive 40% off your pass, but only for a limited time. You don't want to miss this innovative event. I'm so excited to have a discount code. Look, I feel very legit right now. 40%. That's huge. I mean, I'm excited. Maybe they'll talk about terbanibulin there. And if not, you'll talk about it now. Exactly. So our first article is out of the New England Journal of Medicine. No slouching here. Chief authors are Andrew Blauvelt and Minfun R. Kwan. And in the list of esteemed authors is included Stephen Turing, lovely human being who I did research with in my fourth year in medical school. I'm quite fond of him and his excellent work. He's contributed quite a lot to our field. So this is over the phase three trials of terbanibulin ointment for actinic keratoses. To explain what that is, terbanibulin, we need to talk about what it does. So it is a tubulin polymerization and SRC kinase signaling inhibitor. It's being investigated as a topical treatment for actinic keratoses, and it's also being investigated to look at how long it's able to maintain regression or remission of these structures. Um, to understand what this does, we are going to have to talk about SARC. So, Luke, ready? Let's talk about Sarkluki. It's a kinase, but not TK. It's associated with the membrane and it helps with signaling. Let's talk about Sark. A C Sarky C Sark. It stands for sarcoma. Let's talk about Sark. A C Sarky C Sark. Cellular sarcoma. So that is a very important gene. Love As it. I, thank you. Thank you very much. As I just sang to you, this is an important membrane associated non receptor tyrosine kinase that actually helps to um, act as an important signaling membrane, uh, signaling a molecule between the variety of intercellular outputs. And it helps also with cell proliferation, differentiation, apoptosis, migration, and metabolism. All of these signaling um, pathways can kind of go through the SARC family of kinases. And it's, and, it's spelled S-R-C. Yes, but it's pronounced SARC. Okay. Short for sarcoma. So non-tyrosine receptor kinase, uh, sorry, non-receptor tyrosine kinase, my bad. And it has the um, ability to help transmit these signals. So this is one of the things it acts on. It also acts as a tubulin polymerization inhibitor, the terbanibulin. So in the U.S., as we know, prevalence of actinic keratoses is about 58 million Pearsons. The condition affects men more frequently and patients with fair skin more frequently. 
as well as people who have more exposure to UV light or patients who are older. We know that if they're not treated, actinic keratosis may progress to invasive squamous cell carcinoma. The rate at which that happens is a matter of hot debate, so hot right now, but the rates range from 0.25, sorry, 0.025 to 16% per lesion per year. So it's unpredictable which ones are going to misbehave. So we are recommended to treat all of them. Though we did discuss a previous article where it's not quite so unpredictable. And in fact, they said some of them probably have basically a zero risk of transforming. But as you might guess, the thicker, crustier ones do seem to have a higher risk. Um, This was approved for the treatment of AKs in December of 2020, apparently. So I was embarrassed that I was at a meeting and saw a booth for it. And I was like, what the heck is this medicine I've never heard of? It's approved. It's a dermatology medicine. I'm embarrassed. So these are the this is the trial here that got it approved. Yes, and this was published in February uh, of 2021. So it's it's been out a while, but not forever. So I don't think there's anything to be embarrassed about. So this is a topical agent, like many other topical agents that we have. So our current armamentarium of topical treatment agents includes fluorouracil, diclofenac, amiquimod, or inginel mebutate, along with photodynamic therapy, which we may speak about later today. The um, medication has pretty good tolerability. And we want to think about that when we're talking about the different topicals that we have access to right now. So most of our other topicals that we have access to can cause, as this one can, local reactions, pain, irritation, um, erosions, and and changes like that. Less common with this medication, but potentially present with other treatments include ulcerations and skin pigmentation changes, scarring, and potentially a long period of treatment with other agents. So the trabanabulin, in comparison, looks potentially beneficial in that it is able to be used for a shorter period of time. So the treatment protocol is once daily application for five days. The hope is that that improves tolerability and adherence to treatment completion. So just a little bit more about it. Terbanibulin, it is a synthetic inhibitor of tubulin polymerization and SRC kinase signaling. It induces P53 expression, arrest of cell division at interface GAP2, and mitosis in proliferating cell populations. It's also able then to cause Uh, subsequent apoptosis by stimulation of caspase 3 pathways and polymerase cleavage pathways. So you end up kind of activating the cleanup crew, if you will, by using this medication on any cell that's not up to snuff with its genetic um, equipment. I like that it has a novel mechanism of action. I remain skeptical that we need more treatments for AKs, though. It is an interesting uh, potential treatment pathway. I always think that Whenever we find a new topical that has a different mechanism of action that works on these different topical um, treatments of conditions like actinic keratosis, we're getting closer to understanding a little bit more of the pathogenesis of these cancers. So it's always exciting when there's a new treatment agent. Let's figure out if it's appropriate to use. So their methods to kind of investigate this were two identically designed double-blinded trials that they are randomly assigned in a one-to-one ratio. They assigned adults with actinic keratosis on the face or scalp to receive either topical terbanabulin or vehicle placebo ointment. The ointment was applied to a 25 square centimeter area that contained four to eight lesions once daily for five consecutive days. They looked for their primary outcome at the percentage of patients with a complete 100% reduction in the number of lesions in the application area at day 57. I do like talking about complete response rates because that's always our goal. Also, I am in a um, physician band named Complete Response because we're all like para-oncology people. So that's also a lot of fun. So we're looking for a complete response 100% at day 57. Secondary outcome was the percentage of patients with partial clearance. That was 
greater than 75% reduction in the number of lesions within the application area at day 57. And then they also looked at the incidence of recurrence at one year, and they scored local reactions using a four-point scale with zero being absent and three being severe. So out of these patients, they enrolled 702 patients in the two trials, 351 per trial. They had complete clearance in trial one. This is going to be a theme that repeats itself. The assessors in trial one were either more strict or the patients in trial one were less lucky because they didn't have as good of outcomes consistently as group two, but the sort of drift between the two groups was constant across the different metrics that they're looking at. So I think that it's still quite a um, usable study and, and still quite well done. And, you know, sometimes there are just site differences and things that account for that. So I think that it's uh, within the range of acceptable variants and not anything to worry about, but you will notice a little bit of a theme. So in trial one, 44% of their patients had complete clearance in the treatment arm and in the placebo arm, only 5% had complete clearance. So again, that kind of drives home that message that some of these actinic keratoses do go away if you leave them alone completely, but it is difficult to predict which ones are going to do that. If you go off of some of the metrics we discussed previously, thickness and hyperkeratosis can be beneficial. And this was after two months of treatment. Yes, after their 57 days. Um, and perhaps, I mean, who knows, maybe 5% of them disappeared because they were actually were just like little flakes of dry skin and not AKs, and they got moisturized by the vehicle into oblivion. <laughs> the way that they did the um, placebo control, I thought was well done. The ointment packets were provided by the company and were completely identical to the treatment um, packets. So the patients really couldn't tell the difference. There was some appropriate self-criticism um, of the study raised by the authors that potentially investigators may not be completely blind because they may be able to tell a difference between somebody who's on active treatment versus somebody who's on placebo. But it does seem from looking at the analysis that the placebo did cause some irritation. So there might not have been quite as big of a difference between the two groups in terms of their physical appearance to the investigators that might have skewed the data anyway. So I think that they did a great job of keeping this blinded. So in that difference between the 44% of patients that had complete clearance in group one on treatment versus the 5% in the placebo, they had a difference of about 40 percentage points with their confidence interval of 32 to 47. Trial two, the percentages for complete clearance were 54%, so 10% higher than in group one, and 13% with the placebo. Again, the difference though remains similar. So 42 percentage points of difference ranging from 33 to 51. So that difference stays consistent across the different uh, comparators within the trial, but the group two always seems to have slightly better grades. <laughs> so the percentage of patients with a partial clearance was also significantly higher in the terbanibulin group than in the vehicle group. And the potential for a long-term clearance was greater in the terbanibulin group. The most common local reactions to, ter to terbanibulin were erythema in 91% of the patients. That's a lot of people with erythema, and flaking or scaling in 82%. Adverse events with terbenibulin um, were site application pain in 10% of the patients and pruritus in 9%, all of which resolved. So in these two identically designed trials, terbenibulin 1% ointment applied once daily for five days was superior to vehicle for treatment of actinic keratoses at two months, but it was associated with transient local reactions and recurrence of lesions at one year. There aren't trials comparing terbenibulin with conventional treatments, but that is something that should be conducted in the future to determine if the effects of terbanibulin and actinic keratosis are more beneficial than the other changes that can potentially be encountered. And the exclusion criteria for patients were um, atypical hypertrophic or 
recalcitrant or rapidly changing actinic keratoses. So those kind of problem children that we spoke about in the previous article review may have been excluded from this study. The, um, go ahead. So the upshot seems to be that this works all right, um, but can be pretty irritating and takes uh, a week, did you say, for treatment? Five days, yeah, five days of application and just once daily application. And so I think this that... stuff is available right now. It's called Kleisiri. It costs $1,000 for one treatment's worth. By the way, 5-fluorouracil, which we sometimes call Effudex, costs $55. So uh, what are we doing here? So our goal, I think, as dermatologists is to prevent squamous cell carcinoma as comfortably and inexpensively as possible. And so this one perhaps works on the comfort level. I tell patients there's not really a comfortable way to get rid of these. We talk about you know cryotherapy and PDT and 5-fluorouracil and all that, and they all suck. And this one also sucks, but for a shorter period of time, so that part's nice. Uh, maybe PDT is an even shorter period of time. But how effective is it really? So and 5-fluorouracil, for example, has been compared in a few different trials. We talked about one of them in demo episode number three, which you can get as a bonus episode, where after a year, 75% of people had a 75% reduction in actinic keratoses, which is not exactly a metric they looked at in this trial, it looks like, but you said they had a lot of recurrence at one year, so that's discouraging. And also more recently in episode 88, that was the one that talked about how AKs might not actually turn into squames after all. Um, again, they quoted another study with 5-fluorouracil where the risk of squamous cell carcinoma developing was 1% in the group that was treated with 5-fluorouracil, but 4% in the group that wasn't. So it looks like we're actually preventing some squames, but the effects of that waned after a couple years. They did also go over a little bit the comparators, not directly because, of course, this trial was not designed to do that. But they went over the fact that our commonly prescribed topical treatments, which include fluorouracil, diclofenac, amiquimod, and inginal mibutate, have reported complete clearance rates of 31 to 48%. So this complete clearance rate here, 40-ish percent um, in, in both of these studies, uh, when you subtract from placebo, is sort of in keeping with that same group. The placebo rates in the other studies was 3 to 17% out of that 31 to 48%. So I think it is probably... As effective, I agree with you that I don't know that it's superior in terms of its ability to provide clearance to other agents. And of course, a lot of these studies are designed um, mostly to show non-inferiority whenever they do actually do direct head-to-head -head comparisons. It will be interesting to see if any of that type of study comes out about this medication. Uh, the incidence of recurrence with the conventional treatment, like uh, to date for actinic keratoses, the authors cite different studies that show treatment um, recurrence rates from 20 to 96%. That just depends on which different um, topical chemotherapeutic is selected. So the recurrence rate in this medication was 47% at one year. And then the estimated incidence of any lesions, new or recurrent, in the application area was 73%. So one thing I think that these studies keep telling us is that these patients need consistent ongoing attention. There's no such thing as like one and done with actinic keratosis patients and getting them treated. I wish that there was a reset button for skin, but there just isn't one. So, you know, we have to kind of keep with the biology of the process we're treating. But I think it is nice to have an extra tool. It's nice to have some extra understanding of how that pathway participates in carcinogenesis. And, you know, 
something interesting to test our residents over, if nothing else, because of the novel mechanism. Yeah, it's hard for me to imagine the patient who would be the right candidate for this, especially given the cost and the fact that its efficacy is kind of middling, in my opinion. I appreciate that uh, pharmaceutical companies are out there trying new stuff, especially the new mechanism of action things. Um, but I wonder if this is really where we should be focusing our healthcare research dollars. I feel like there's other diseases besides 8Ks that are both more important and get less attention. What I'm hopeful for, too, though, is that um, sometimes we get therapeutics for orphan diseases or more rare conditions out of treatments that have been developed for more common ones. So we, of course, as scientists and as physicians, want to learn the most about the conditions we treat, and we want to take the very best care of the patients that have those conditions with the best tools. That's our motivation. It helps, I think, for us to understand the motivation of the companies that make these drugs. Of course, ostensibly, they want to help patients too, but they have a slightly different set of motivations where they're looking more toward what is the greatest impact I can have with this medication and to be you know, honest, what is the greatest profit to be had when you're looking for incidents of conditions? You're going to have, as a drug company, a lot more interest in a condition that's common and occurs relatively frequently in a, in a patient population that's often insured versus a condition that is an orphan that occurs more frequently in uninsured patients. But we've gotten some therapeutics for orphan conditions off of more mainstream things. Uh, for example, the ability to treat certain ulcerative types of conditions and bechettes and things like that with medications like Otesla, which was developed for psoriasis. So, Apremolest. Oh, yes. Um, so I'm hopeful that our understanding that's been furthered by the development of this medication can also have some downstream beneficial effects for other conditions. But good things to know about, good things to pimp about. If you're a resident in training, you have a new mechanism of action to learn. Plus, no, I don't have to be embarrassed that I don't know about it when I walk past the booth. Um, okay, let's talk about something super rare instead of something super common. This is an article out of the JAD. It's actually in the dermatopathology section, so uh, might ask for your help for part of it. It's called Human Polyomavirus 6 and 7 are Associated with Pyritic and Dyskeratotic Dermatoses. This Authors is literally include... one of my favorite things in dermatopathology, so I'm going to geek out about this. Oh, yes. well, I should have had you review the article. No, no, no. Uh, Authors include Kang Wen and Richard Wang. So this article begins because there were two previous observations. Observation number one, rare patients have been reported who have an itchy pigmented rash that's not well classified. Most of these people have been immunosuppressed lung transplant patients. And then pathology shows a very characteristic... Peacock keratosis. Sorry, I'm so excited. ...very noticeable or obvious pattern. Um, why don't you describe it? <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So the, the histologic pattern is called peacock perikeratosis, and it's actually quite beautiful histopathologically. It's being caused by the viral cytopathic effects of these human polyomaviruses. And basically, whoa, whoa, whoa. Spoilers. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. Spoiler Just tell us what it looks like. Okay. Um, so it's so named peacock perikeratosis because it's reminiscent of peacock plumage. There are these large dyskeratotic nuclei in the stratum corneum that retain their central nucleus and to the primary authors, as well as I think to anybody who has an artistically minded brain, when you're looking at this, it does remind you a little bit of like a peacock's tail, like those big round sort of eyes, I suppose, are what they're supposed to remind people of is a defensive mechanism with the peacock. But the big round structures that are in a peacock feather 
those are somewhat reminiscent of these large perikeratotic um, nuclei that are within the stratum corneum at some distance from each other in this peacock perikeratosis, which is the histopathologic hallmark of this condition. Excellent. So observation one, rare immunosuppressed patients with a funny rash that had this funny histology finding. And observation number two, human polyomaviruses. There's a lot of them around, and they seem to be part of the human, quote, virome. I'd never heard the term virome before I read this article, but I was aware that human DNA kind of is littered with the carcasses of deceased viruses that basically <laughs> fail to get a toehold and cause disease. So if you look at our genome, there's a lot of sequences in there that are basically viruses that are just chilling because they weren't able to cause disease, but they're still not like eliminated. And so there's probably a lot of like HPV strains like this. Apparently there's a lot of human polyomaviruses that are like them. But if you're immunosuppressed, perhaps those viruses can then become active. And human polyomavirus 7 has been detected in the lesional skin of these previously described patients, the lung transplant patients. So is it coincidence? Well, this study was trying to show that it wasn't. Or I guess they looked into it and decided that it wasn't. So this study used archived tissue from three other patients who showed the same histologic findings of this peacock plumage. They used a lot of fancy molecular techniques and other fancy techniques and showed lots of polyomavirus 6 or 7 in the lesional tissue of these three archived specimens, as well as cytopathic changes consistent with viral infection. So just like you say, this peacock plumage perhaps caused by the polyomavirus actually infecting cells. And they also used immunofluorescent studies that localized the virus to keratinocytes. So this seems to be the first time we've identified keratinocytes specifically as the target for these human polyomaviruses. And they even busted out this old technology from the 70s called electron microscopy. <laughs> and they found viral capsids in the cells of one patient. Have you ever used electron microscopy, Michelle? I have, actually. So I, in my undergraduate research, I was working with Dr. Blanton and Dr. Hagler, and they used a lot of electron microscopy to help understand plant biology. Did you know that I was a plant biologist before I was even a medical student? I thought you were a human biologist this whole time. <laughs> no, plants, poison ivy, it's my secret plan. I'd still think it's awesome that we've got technology that can look that small. It just doesn't seem to be as useful as the textbooks had me believe when I was in high school. So the authors like the term for this condition, human polyomavirus 6 and 7 associated pruritic and dyskeratotic dermatosis. So if you do have an immunosuppressed patient who has kind of a funny, brownish, papulish, itchy rash, you might want to do a biopsy. And if you see this peacock plumage, you can say, hmm, perhaps this is associated with human polyomaviruses. But the association isn't 100%. So their search through their archives identified three other patients who also had the same peacock plumage histology, but they did not find the polyomaviruses there. So who knows why, but perhaps it's not exactly pathognomonic. Also, their findings in this study support a potential causative role for the virus in these disorders. So is it the polyomavirus that's causing this rash? Maybe, but it's not really certain. For example, they found a lot more virus in these patients than in healthy control specimens that they had lying around. But I wondered, what about like immunosuppressed controls? They didn't comment that they just got lesional skin from, or non-lesional random skin from immunosuppressed patients. Maybe people who are immunosuppressed just shed this virus all the time, and it's not actually associated with the rash. Who knows? 
It's a good question. I have a case um, where I'm suspicious of this that I've actually sent to Dr. Wang, who is very nice and very helpful. Um, so they they have the tissue. I've, I'm waiting for the results with bated breath. Very excited. But the um, challenging part with this, there aren't uh, commercial labs that really do this testing yet. So I had to kind of do a little deep dive and was very fortunate to be connected to Dr. Wang, who's been very gracious and willing to check on the tissue. So I shall keep you posted. Would you be violating HIPAA if you told us in what sense your patient was immunosuppressed? I can say broadly that it's a severe autoimmune disease. Okay. The patients in this study, one of them had AIDS. Um, that patient also had lots of HPV strains that were detected on biopsy, and she was diagnosed as having epidermodysplasia verusiformis. So uh, residents, you might remember that there's sort of the inherited version, and then there's the version that you can get if you're seriously immunosuppressed, most commonly described with patients with AIDS. That's getting a bunch of little wart-like lesions from other HPV strains that don't normally cause human disease. Uh, one of their other patients was an organ transplant patient. And then patient number three had no known immunosuppression, but was recently hospitalized for bad infections like sepsis, a paraphrangeal abscess, and pneumonia. And so they speculate that this patient had some sort of unknown transient immunosuppression that also caused this paritic dyskeratosis. The first two patients died, not because of the dyskeratosis, but I think just because they were profoundly immunosuppressed and had a lot of other things going on. Um, but the third experienced spontaneous, really spontaneous remission. So perhaps his immunosuppression that we presume happened just went away for some reason, and so he got better. The clinical findings were all fairly similar. They described them as generalized, scaly, hyperpigmented papules coalescing into plaques present for at least a year. And if you look at the photos, they relatively spare the axillae. Their description for the histology is scattered dyskeratotic cells throughout the epidermis, along with irregular columns of parakeratosis in the stratum corneum. Apparently, a number of people think it looks like peacock feathers, but it's been described as more boring terms as well in the literature, including columnar dyskeratosis and tiered parakeratosis with dyskeratosis. All accurate, but I think I like the poetry of peacock parakeratosis. By the way, the Merkel cell virus is a polyomavirus. Where's our pimping bell? So it can cause some sort of disease. It's called the MC virus or MIC virus, if you will. There's another um, polyomavirus that's dermatologically relevant. Do you know what it is? Oh, sure. The trichodysplasia spinulosa virus. Yeah. So patients who are severely immunosuppressed, maybe not that severely, can get these little spicules on their noses. It's called by this polyomavirus called the trichodysplasia spinulosa virus. Um, others that are important for human disease include the BK virus, which is human polyomavirus 1, and the JC virus, which is human polyomavirus 2, and that one causes the multifocal leukoencephalopathy that we may have remembered from medical school. Yeah, those are OG. Those were actually first described in 1971. And apparently the letters are the initials of the patients in whom they were discovered. Oh, like nice. JC is... John Cunningham or something like that. Not John Connor. I would remember that Terminator <laughs> reference. And I discovered during looking into this article, uh, these polyomaviruses are not related to polio, which is the polio virus. I thought they were all part of the same family or something, but apparently oh, they just wow. have similar names. So that's the story. What does this all mean for treatment? Well, they don't really comment on that, except pointing out that all of these studies can potentially elucidate treatment options in the future. But to my mind, obvious thoughts for treatment are to reduce the patient's immunosuppression or potentially consider antivirals. 
I think you bring up an excellent point there that to um, somebody who hasn't reviewed this particular viral pathway, polyoma and polio do sound like each other. So if it was something you were considering in a patient, probably making it really clear that those two are not related to each other would settle some nerves. Um, I think that the polyoma viruses are fascinating. They've caused a lot of trouble. I remember learning about the JC polyomavirus and VK polyomavirus and like microbiology made ridiculously simple with something about like Burger King and JCPenney or something like that. Hey, the guy who wrote that book was faculty at the University of Pittsburgh where I worked. That's He's awesome. I see you attending. I worked with him once. I was going to have him sign my book, but I forgot to bring it. Oh, no. You should have him do that at some point. <laughs> All right. So... I'm still thinking about actinic keratosis. What can we do that's not an expensive new medicine? Well, we could use a treatment we've been using for a long time. So I'm going to go over this lovely article. This is a nice original article here out of the JAD. And the chief authors are Taylor Bullock and Edward Mayton. Edward Mayton is one of the people who trained me. So I got to talk about Steve Turing in the last article who I got to do research with before. And then Ed Mayton was faculty when I was at Cleveland Clinic, and he is a lovely human being. So Taylor Bullock and Ed Mayton are the chief authors here for the article, Significant Improvement of Facial Actinic Keratoses After Blue Light Photodynamic Therapy with Oral Vitamin D Pretreatment and Interventional Cohort Controlled Trial. Also so out of the JAD. Also out of the JAD, yes. And so this is out of the Lerner Research Institute in the Cleveland Clinic and the Wellman Center of Photomedicine in Mass General. Background, um, mouse skin cancer models, they have found that high-dose oral vitamin D combined with photodynamic therapy can improve the clearance of squamous precancers, actinic keratoses, or AKs. So they refer to AKs as squamous precancers. I feel like that might be a good way to talk to them to insurance companies. Talk about them, you know, could be like, oh, well, what we're treating is squamous precancers, so people understand the point. Um, I can't get that episode 88 article out of my head that says they might not even transform into cancers. I mean, it's I think stuck that, with me. I think that definitely some percentage of them do. I think that, you know, in my practice, my residents have little spots that we call bakays, like baby AKs. And with bakays, sometimes we will treat those with like topicals, either, you know, tretinoin just to keep them in line, or if they're a little bit thicker, we'll do like field therapy potentially. But um, we try to, of course, reserve our, our vigor for the more aggressive appearing actinic keratosis that are more hyperkeratosis and more hyperkeratotic and thicker. Okay, so, so I know this is a bit of a tangent, but as long as we're talking about it, let me just tell you guys how I approach patients with actinic keratosis. I say, you've got a couple spots on your face here that are probably what we call actinic keratosis. They're super common, they're caused by the sun, and each year they have roughly a one in a thousand chance of transforming into a mild type of skin cancer that generally doesn't kill people unless you ignore it, but would have to be surgically removed. So it's super annoying. So one in a thousand chance, mild skin cancer. Some patients say, hmm, that doesn't sound so bad. I'll just let you know if it gets worse, which I think is totally reasonable. And some people say, get rid of them. And if you want to get rid of them, here are the options. That's generally how what I tell people. And the caveats are the thicker ones I'm more worried about. So those I'll treat. If there's just a few of them, I'll like curatage and cryo them. If there's more than that, then we'll talk about field treatment. And then if they're on the ear or the lip, I think the transformation rate's a bit higher. And then they're worse actors if they do transform. So I'm a bit more aggressive about treating those. And then if they're like symptomatic, if people are annoyed by them, then I think it makes sense to treat them. But I feel like I probably treat way fewer AKs than a lot of my colleagues. And not just because I see mostly kids. 
I think that, you know, looking towards symptomatology is also appropriate. A lot of patients do complain about burning and stinging discomfort with actinic keratoses. Of course, there's also textural irregularities that they create. Um, but I think that, you know, treating them with appropriate level of balance between risk and benefit is very reasonable. So in this study, back to the matter at hand, as Snoop Dogg would say, um, they wanted to determine whether oral vitamin D can help improve the clinical efficacy of a painless PDT regimen in humans with actinic keratoses. And this is something that this group has been working on a little bit for a while. So they did baseline lesion counts and serum 25-hydroxyvitamin um, D3 levels uh, in, in both sets of patients. In one cohort, group one, they had 29 patients that gave gentle debridement and a 15-minute ALA pre-incubation, two followed by blue light irradiation for 30 minutes at 20 joules per centimeter squared. So that was their group one. Group two, they had 29 patients in whom they supplemented oral vitamin D, 10,000 international units daily for five or 15, sorry, five or 14 days prior to the debridement and PDT treatment. Lesion clearance was then assessed at three to six months. In group one, their mean clearance rates for facial AKs were lower than lower in patients who had vitamin D3 deficiency. So if patients had a vitamin D3 of less than 31, then they had lower clearance rates of their facial actinic keratoses. And their complete response in that group that had deficiency of vitamin D was 40.9% versus patients with normal vitamin D levels who had a clearance rate of 62, sorry, who had a complete response rate of 62.6%. So they got better clearance in patients who naturally had higher vitamin D levels. And I'm sorry, how long after the PDT did they measure the clearance? Um, the clearance rate was three measured to six months. Three okay. to six months, yeah. So they had the treatment, and then similar to the previous study, they sort of let the patients kind of cook along like normal and then assessed for clearance rates. Um, and I think that is what we expect to see, like final results for PDT. So as you can tell patients, you know... If you see him a month later, well, it looks like he got some benefit, but you'll continue getting benefit over the next couple of months. Exactly, exactly. So then so for group two, they had um, an improved overall actinic keratosis response compared to group one. This was the group that they did the high-dose vitamin D supplementation, and they didn't notice any differences in side effects. The trial design was interventional cohort matched to registry-based controls, so it was not randomized. They enrolled patients prospectively for the vitamin D supplementation arm. For the other arm, they were matched out of a database. So they had age and, and complication matched sort of controls that they used for this study so that they didn't have to, you know, have two separate groups that they enrolled. In this study, they did find that oral vitamin D3 pretreatment improved actinic keratosis clinical responses to PDT and that the regimen was well tolerated. So just a little bit more detail about this. Um, they wanted to look into this ultra short five ALA incubation blue light regimen, which they have previously described. Yeah. That so it's kind of exciting when you read, Oh, just give people a bunch of vitamin D before PDT and they'll do well. And then you're like, wait, the protocol is funny compared to what I do. And apparently they've described it before and I just wasn't aware of it. So this is a modified protocol for patients to undergo photodynamic therapy where the incubation time is shortened, and it's more similar to daylight PDT in terms of the regimen. So the patients tend to tolerate it a little bit better because the stinging pain can be treatment limiting. The original blue light PDT protocol actually specified a 14 to 18 hour incubation time with ALA. Nuts. Which was, yeah, that's insane. So you'd have to give it to them the day before, they'd put it on, have to hide from the sun this entire time, 
as well as any um, strong and exposed blue light source. And then they'd have to come back to the office to have the skin irradiated with the blue light. So the 14 to 18 hour incubation time, fortunately, is a thing of the past, unless you're doing research on it, I would suppose. They've re- the regular use of this medicine, the incubation time has been reduced to one to four hours, which reduces pain but maintains efficacy. The patients still do experience discomfort, however, which can be a deterrent to therapy. So the efficacy is also not necessarily optimal with the one to three hour ALA incubation. The mean actinic keratosis clearance rates on the face and scalp were only 50 to 60% for a single treatment with the one to three hour incubation regimen, which improves to 65 to 75% if a second treatment was performed eight weeks later. They've noticed similar findings with red light PDT, um, which explain why European guidelines would recommend a second PDT session after three months typically. So the goals of this group were to reduce the pain experienced by AK patients and enhance the therapeutic effectiveness of the blue light PDT. And so they recently reported this new regimen where the elimination begins within minutes after applying the photosensitizer, similar to daylight PDT, but instead of the sunlight, they use the standard artificial blue light, but for 30 minutes. The typical treatment period for uh, blue light PDT with a traditional incubation period of one to three hours is 16 minutes. It's like a thousand seconds, I think is what it works out to be. So this is a longer treatment period. Kind of funny. So possibly more convenient for the patients, but I I don't know if anybody's blue light is booked up, you know, every 16 minutes, they've got a new patient getting in there, but this would put a kibosh on that, right? Because you have patients in there for 30 minutes instead of 16. Yeah, you would have to kind of activate the machine twice back to back to achieve that treatment duration. The simultaneous incubation elimination regimen demonstrated lesion clearance rates indistinguishable from the more traditional regimen, like a one-hour incubation time, but the experience was essentially pain-free for the patients. Pain-free. That's what I know. Sorry, I keep interrupting you, Michelle. No, that's okay. There's there's a lot of details in here that I find interesting or exciting. Providing emphasis and color commentary are are part of our jobs for each other. I accept that with open arms. It makes things lively and exciting, and we like it. So with either the new or old regimens, the lesion clearance rates at three months after treatment were about 55% for the face and about 45% for the scalp after one treatment. So that was kind of change number one. Their next challenge was to improve their clinical response. They looked at vitamin D3 for this, which, as everyone should know, is a steroid hormone that regulates bone and calcium metabolism and may regulate skin cancer susceptibility. In previous work, they've demonstrated that vitamin D3 increases protoporphyrin 9 production in the mitochondria, which enhances PDT-mediated killing of cancer cells in murine skin cancer models. They they, They noticed, actually, that this was true, whether the vitamin D3 was delivered topically or orally. They also note that vitamin D3 has an outstanding safety profile, which makes it a good candidate for neoadjuvant PDT. There was a trial in Brazil that actually used topical calcipatriol, a synthetic vitamin D analog, and they did a half scalp study where they applied the calcipatriol to half of the scalp for 15 days prior to the red light PDT that gave greater protoporphyrin 9 accumulation and lesion clearance compared to the contralateral side. In the United States, topical calcipatriol is quite expensive and only approved for psoriasis. So the authors rightfully point out that we haven't done that study because it isn't going to be covered by medical insurers for skin cancer. But as an alternative to the topical calcipatriol, they wanted to use the oral vitamin D to see if that could boost the therapeutic efficacy as a neoadjuvant. And long story short, it did. So I think that they did a nice job demonstrating the fact that if you supplement vitamin D, in patients who you're treating with photodynamic therapy, 
that you may achieve greater lesion clearance with minimal change in side effects, and you may improve tolerability with a shorter incubation time. The um, pretty cool. I like I like looking at the vitamin D response with some things. There's some other studies that have shown that vitiligo and psoriasis may respond better to treatments when vitamin D is optimized in those patients. So I think it makes sense. And atopic dermatitis. We've discussed that on the podcast as well. So this is way easier and cheaper than buying a new medicine to put on people's faces. It's kind of do the same thing that I've been doing, but have them take vitamin D for two weeks ahead of time. The different protocol, uh, I don't know. I guess I'd have to talk to our, we have sort of nurse specialists who run our light therapy stuff. Would you want to try this 15-minute pre-incubation and then 30-minute exposure time kind of approach? The gentle debridement they say they did is perhaps a hiccup because I don't think our nurses are trained to sort of actively identify AKs and then curette them. But I suppose I could curette them in clinic so that hopefully they hadn't thickened up by the time their blue light treatment rolled around. But the low-hanging fruit is just do exactly what I normally do for PDT, but have people take 10,000 IU of vitamin D a day for two weeks beforehand. Yeah, and PDT is coded differently depending on who performs the application of the medication and whether or not the lesions are curetted prior to therapy. That was changed in 2018, so they changed the CPT codes. And um, that's something that, of course, you'd want to document if you're doing this treatment in your office. The authors also highlight a little bit that the utilization of PDT seems to be um, less than one would expect. And I think that they rightfully point to the discomfort that the treatment can cause but I think one of the biggest deterrents from using photodynamic therapy, to be completely honest, is just that the cost of the ALA has gone up significantly over time, and it has become disparate from the reimbursement for the PDT, even if you're doing the most aggressive version, which is physician-performed curatage prior to the application of the PDT, which is also done by the physician. Um, so I think that that is one of the reasons it's not used as much. And, you know, if the CPT codes remain where they are, I think that the product cost may need to be adjusted so that it's more usable. Well, I like PDT. The article that I referred to earlier that we discussed in demo episode number three did compare it in one of the four arms to 5FU, as well as a couple other things. They used the MAL PDT, so it's probably roughly equivalent to what we generally do. But the clearance rate at a year was a lot less, so it was 75% for 5-fluorouracil, and then for PDT, I'm looking at it now, it was 38%, so quite a bit less, but still did you know something, and I think the benefit is that I feel like it's less overall annoying and uncomfortable for the patients, even though that particular study sort of didn't say that. And then as the doctor, I like being able to see in the chart that they had it done rather than handing them a cream and assuming they'll put it on twice a day for four weeks or whatever. So it's kind of my default field treatment. And then if I can ramp it up with this approach, that'd be great. Yeah, I think it's a very valid and useful treatment. And I think it actually has a lot of applicability. Um, I think that working on parameters to make it more usable, both from a user standpoint, making it more comfortable for the patient. And then also from a feasibility standpoint, um, could inc improve its use. And it's useful for a lot of different uh, therapeutic options. You can treat things besides um, actinic keratosis with it. It's, it's just a very interesting technology. And what's crazy is that the um, methyl amino levulinate with the red light source 
Like it's sad that I think it actually got approved in the United States, but it just didn't get market share. So that's just not available in the US anymore, which is sort of sad because I think that the red light PDT also, also offers some flexibility. Well, in the US, we also need to get the white light PDT and then you can get the red, white and blue just one after the other. <laughs> white yeah. light PDT is just sunlight PDT. We already have it, man. Oh, well, you got to market that, Michelle. So this is... Everyone would be jumping on board for the American photodynamic therapy. (laughs) So speaking of America, when we were at the Texas Derm Society, I walked past this other booth for a medicine that I had never heard of called Spesolimab, 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 Mm -hmm. which is specifically for generalized pustular psoriasis. So a very niche indication, but it has been approved for this in September 2022. And so... I want to talk about the trial that got it approved. So this is a, out of the New England Journal. It's called Trial of Spesolimab for Generalized Pustular Psoriasis. The authors include Dr. Bachelors and Dr. Lebwall. And the brand name for this Spesolimab is called Spavigo. Spavigo! V-I-G-O. It doesn't seem to have a price available yet, so I don't know that it's available commercially if you wanted to use it, but uh, maybe... So, generalized pustular psoriasis. It's rare, fortunately, because it's bad and can rarely be life-threatening. And it's apparently, it's due to an abundance of interleukin-36, or at least it can be in some cases. It's probably bellworthy. Thanks. Interleukin-36, generalized pustular psoriasis. Then it's been Sorry, associated... I was, I was trying to find the, the cost. I think I did find it. The, oh, how much is it? It says the Spivigo intravenous solution... Yeah, that's what they used in this study. It's $53,000 for a supply of 15 milliliters. That's Is that like 900 milligrams? Good question. Um, that's what they use. Yes, yes, that's it. Because it's 450 milligrams per 7.5 milliliters. So 15 milliliters is um, 90, no, sorry, 900 milligrams. Yeah. $53,000 Yep. for a single dose. Okay, thank you. So interleukin-36, and apparently generalized pustular psoriasis has been associated with mutations in genes along the IL-36 pathway, such as IL-36RN, CARD-14, APIS-3, SERPIN-A3, and MPO. And by the way, back in episode 43, we discussed a condition called CAPE, C-A-P-E, which stands for CARD-14-associated papulosquamous eruption that shows up in some patients who have these CARD14 mutations. It sort of looks like psoriasis plus pityriasis rubropilaris together and shows up early in life. Uh, so spesolimab is an IL-36 antibody. And as I said, based on this trial approved in September of 2022. So 53 patients were enrolled in the study. They were all adults age 18 to 75. They had a moderate to severe flare of generalized pustular psoriasis, but not bad enough to be in the ICU because you know, this is during an experimental treatment. We don't want to mess around if people are really sick. And of course, as it's a very rare condition, you might expect that they had to um, find patients from a lot of different areas. And indeed, they used 37 sites in 12 different countries. So kudos to these. This must have been an organizational nightmare. They're randomized in a two-to-one ratio to a single IV dose of spesolimab or to placebo. And then everybody could get spesolimab, open label, at day eight if they weren't doing well. So I guess a second $53,000 dose. Um, And before day eight, if the patient wasn't doing well, they could get rescue medications that were at the discretion of the treating physician. 
So the good news is that the Sposola Mab worked pretty well. So after one week, 54% in the treatment group versus 6% in the placebo group achieved the endpoint, which was to have a pustulation score of zero, which I think means you've got no pustules at all anymore. So that's pretty good overall. And then, you know, sort of partial improvement was also much better in the spesolumab group. The bad news, in addition to the cost, I guess, is that spesolumab was associated with infections. So by week 12, remember, sometimes after just a single shot of the medicine, half of the patients had some kind of infection. So I guess IL-36 must be pretty helpful in fighting off infections. Those infections included UTIs, URIs, influenza, folliculitis, otitis externa, and, quote, other infections. Spasolumab potentially was associated with other adverse events, including dress, drug... Uh... <laughs> drug reaction with the acidophilian systemic symptoms. Thanks, it jumped out of my brain for a second, which we also sometimes call drug-induced hypersensitivity syndrome these days. Um, maybe it was associated with dress. The treating physicians called it dress, apparently, but the authors of this study say these two patients who potentially had dress had a Registar dress score. So you can go onto Registar, which is this registry of severe cutaneous adverse reactions, and get some kind of scoring system about dress. One of these patients had a Registar score of one, which basically means it's not dress, and the other had a Registar score of three, which means it was possibly dress. So it seems like it's not definitive. Um, but nothing, nothing really horrible happened. The most horrible things were like the UTIs and things, which, as we know, can be bad, but at least these patients are in the hospital and could be treated. Or at least they were in the hospital when they got the medicine. They might not have been at week 10, I suppose. Seven of these patients had IL-36RN mutations. Um, they say most patients did not have CARD-14 card mutations. 38 patients didn't have it. So that means 15 patients did. Seems like a lot. And most of them also did not have this APIS3 mutations. 42 didn't, but that means 11 did. So these mutations apparently more common than I expected them to be. And their predisposition for generalized pustular psoriasis is certainly real. That's the story. I'm disappointed to hear that it's so expensive. <laughs> I expected it to be pricey, but not maybe quite that pricey. So kind of like the turbinibulin trial, I... Is this really an unmet need? I want our pharmaceutical companies to be working on unmet or poorly met needs. And I don't see a lot of patients with generalized pustular psoriasis. I've seen like one in fellowship. And other treatments do exist for generalized pustular psoriasis, including cyclosporin and biologics, things like acetretin too. And in fact, biologics are approved for generalized pustular psoriasis, specifically in Japan, Taiwan, and Thailand. I think you could even give somebody a prednisone taper without being too embarrassed by it, as long as you were transitioning to something else as well. So I did kind of wonder about the necessity of this medication. What do you think, Michelle? You're usually more forgiving to pharmaceutical companies about this stuff than I am. <laughs> I'm just so curious about the pathways. I'm excited that they're finding new things. Um, I think it's very interesting. I'm hopeful, again, that this is going to help us understand the pathogenesis a little bit better. I think that the work that's been done to get this approved and to demonstrate why it might be beneficial has taught us and brought to our attention more about why some patients may be genetically predisposed to develop pustular psoriasis and potentially in the future of bespoke medicine, which we all hope for, where a person's genes can be looked at and you can be told, okay, don't use this medicine for this person or this medicine for this person. You're predisposed to this. You should avoid that exposure. 
you know, that patient population may be able to have exposures that could induce a pustular flare avoided so that they don't have to experience the severity of it. Um, I've personally treated patients in our burn units with uh, pustular psoriasis um, with different biologics. I've had good experiences with many of them. Um, one of the, I think the one that was the fastest, which isn't going to surprise you because they're, they're fast drugs, would be like IL-17 inhibition, like TALTS, um, ixekizumab. But there are a lot of options for it. I am um, interested to see how it's used and interested to see what else it's going to treat, But I can't, because I can't imagine that this particular condition is the only thing it's going to be beneficial for. So I would say stay tuned. And there are these rare genetic disorders, exactly like you mentioned earlier. We get treatments for orphan diseases out of this. So there's, I think, a condition called DITRA, deficiency of the IL-36 receptor agonist or something like that, where people just have a ton of IL-36 all the time. So if you got this drug, especially in the sub-Q form, that could be you know, life-changing for some people out there. Absolutely. A few other tidbits just about generalized pustular psoriasis. People generally have pain, fever, malaise, fatigue. They can get extracutaneous manifestations like arthritis and neutrophilic cholangitis. How about that? I guess a lot of neutrophils just running around all over the place. The clinical course, it can be relapsing with recurrent flares or persistent with intermittent flares, like acute on chronic kind of approaches. Mortality ranges from 2 to 16%. If you are going to die from generalized pustular psoriasis, it's probably from septic shock or cardiorespiratory failure. Triggers for generalized pustular psoriasis include pregnancy, your eyes, stress, medications, and also medication withdrawal. Yep. And damned then, if you do, damned if you don't. Just kidding. Yeah, we're screwed one way or another. Um, generalized pustular psoriasis is apparently five times more common in Asia compared to Europe and the USA. Um, and anecdotally, the authors say it's more common in whites than blacks. That's the story. It's an interesting drug, an interesting mechanism. I'm intrigued to see what will come out of its development. Well, that's all we got today. Thanks for hanging out with us today, guys. So today we learned about terbenibulin, a new treatment that has been approved for actinic keratoses. We learned about the human polyomaviruses and how some of them could be associated with these rare pyritic and dyskeratotic dermatoses in immunosuppressed individuals. We learned that giving people vitamin D ahead of their PDT treatment might give them better results. And we learned that spesolumab seems to work for generalized pustular psoriasis, but is super expensive and associated with an infection risk. Thanks to our institutions for supporting the podcast, and thanks to Texas Tech for lending us Michelle. Also, thanks to our growing team of Dermosphere medical students who are interested in helping us out. They help us out a lot. So our team now includes Morgan Dykeman, Guy Kuseki, Eleonora Marcacci, Michael Birdsall, Neha Deo, and Aparna Nayak. Thanks for all that you guys do. Among other things, something you do is maintain our social media. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's a good place to reach out to us and say hello. You can also find us on our website, which is dermospherepodcast.com, which includes our entire archive, as well as links to all of the original articles that we have discussed. And you can find us potentially at our other podcast, so our other podcast is called SkinCast. It is directed toward lay people. It's about 15 to 20 minutes per episode, usually focusing on a single top- topic, things like contact dermatitis, sun protection, acne, the connection between skin health and, and diet, all sorts of topics that we've covered. Um, these are 
easy bite-sized chunks of podcast for people who just want to learn more how to take better care of the skin they're in. And remember, hopefully you can also see us in Hawaii in February. Use the discount code Dermosphere for 40% off. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.